great. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Grab a seat. We'll jump in. I haven't met a lot of you. Um, some of you are new or have only come once or twice. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to teach you today. I'm excited about that. Hey, is that the Jones family back there? Hey, this is their first Sunday as a married couple. Everyone give them a hand. That's right. Hey, not too much, just a little bit. Goodness gracious. Hey, turn your Bible to Ruth. Um, We are going through the book of Ruth. Um, This is how we go through the Bible. We go through books from verse 1 to verse end. It keeps us from skipping the tricky passages like the one we have today. (laughs) Um, It actually... Uh, if you don't know the Bible real well or you're still kind of learning about the Bible, it happened. It's actually right after the book of Judges in your Bible, but it's occurring at the same time as the book of Judges. Uh, most scholars believe that this story of Ruth is happening in the backdrop of while Samson was the judge ruling the land. Okay, So whenever you're reading about Samson in the book of Judges, just know in the backdrop in a far off little town called Bethlehem, this story is taking place, um, which is interesting Judges is a unique place in the Bible, I guess not too, not too unique, I mean it's a lot like today, where the Bible says that people did what was right according to their own sight. Basically the population of Israel did what they felt like doing. They, they did what seemed right at all times. That's what steered them in the decisions they made and it made them a very, very unpredictable people. It made them a people that were very undependable. Um, they just, you couldn't depend on them because their flesh, their emotions was the drama that was making big decisions, even weighty decisions. I mean, undependable people are hard. How many of you have ever had or caught your, don't raise your hand, but have caught yourself in a place, caught yourself in a place where you were at the mercy of an undependable person or having to depend on someone who was very undependable. It's an awesome place to be, isn't it? I was thinking about this the other day, and God reminded me of a time where I went river rafting in college. I think it was like a sophomore or a junior, and I was going through that phase that most dudes go through where you try to be an adrenaline junkie. Remember back when that was cool? And so I was, it was on one of the rivers, allegedly it was one of the toughest and most dangerous rivers in the country that you could possibly do. And I thought, that's perfect. That'll make me a junkie. I'll sign up for it. So I remember staring at the river with the raft to my right and a paddle in my left hand waiting for our turn to go into the water and I could see the very first rapid and it was a class five if you don't know much about whitewater rafting class five is the biggest it gets and this river was mostly fours and fives and they were naming the rapids and this one in particular even the first one I was looking at had some ominous name like destroyer of souls or something like that all you saw was foam and jagged rocks and I'm a little scared and I'm panicking and the only thing that could pull my attention away from that class five rapid was this little plume of smoke coming from out beside a tree right so I investigate, which means I looked like this, and I saw that it was my river guide smoking as much weed as he possibly could before it was our turn to get on the water. <laughs> river guides, not the most dependable creatures in society anyway, you know. I shouldn't say that. Listen, if you're a river guide here, we're, we're glad to have you. And I'm, you're probably nothing like this person. But this person saw me see them, and I saw him see me, and we're looking back and forth, and I don't know how far he had gotten, but he was trying to sell me on the fact that, hey, man, hey, 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 
I'm actually a better guide when I'm a little bit high. And I'm thinking, no, you're not. How can that be? Have you seen that rap that I'm looking at? I mean, I want you as freaked out as I am right now. I mean, I'm at the mercy of your ability, and you're a little bit tanked right now. I want you to be on point. Very undependable Milan I was having to depend upon. And it's a fear that we get a lot. It's, that's why some women uh, struggle marrying some guys because they look like losers, and they're going to have to depend on them. They don't look very dependable. Some kids have undependable parents. And they, they are in that place of fearing that they have to depend or are at the mercy of those who are very undependable. Listen, most of us here, it's the same fear that keeps us from trusting our entire lives to God. Not because he's undependable. It's because we fear he is. It's because we think he is. Deep inside all of us, there's a peace, even me, there's a peace that feels like God might drop us or forget about us or not guide us correctly, or lose us, or not consider us, not think of us, not desire us, not like us, not answer us, not provide what we want, not provide what we need. And because we're all cracked to the very core with sin in our lives, what we do is we try to manufacture our own solutions. We build our own crutches to lean on that we feel like can support our weight. We create and synthesize our own remedies, our own answers. It's something that all of us do. So today in this passage, in particular, you're going to see, I'm just going to tell you the punchline right now, you're going to see a very vivid contrast between two different men. My hope is, is that you see Jesus Christ more clearly. We say it every week whenever we introduce a passage. In this passage, we want you to see Jesus Christ more clearly, that he'd be more compelling to you and you would respond to him deeper because he is dependable and this passage shows it to us. Um, I don't have the time to go into the whole story of Ruth and recap the whole thing, but last week I will say we did talk about Ruth who has no husband because he died and she's from another land and she's living with her mother-in-law in Bethlehem who is a Jew, Naomi, right? So you've got these two women with no husbands. Last week we saw the advice that Naomi gave Ruth which was to take a shower Put on some attractive clothes, not seductive clothes, just attractive ones, to show that she wasn't mourning anymore. To put on some perfume, and in the dead of night, to slink down to the camp in the area where Boaz was going to be found sleeping after he'd had a long day's work and a belly full of food and a couple of beers, and she was going to slink around, curl up next to his feet, snuggle, and then move his blanket in order to wake him up, and then when he rouses himself, to propose that he proposed to her. <laughs> and that's what happens. And that really happens. It's really in the Bible. And he does. He says, I will be your redeemer. I will marry you. I'm excited about that. But there's a problem. By law and by our culture, there is one closer to you than I am. A true kinsman redeemer. And he has first choice over whether you, your land, and your family are redeemed over me. So I'd marry you right now, but I want to honor God. And that's what he did. He wanted to honor God. He wanted to do what pleased God. He wanted to preserve what God desired. And this happened to be it at the time. And then in probably the most unawkward moment in the whole story, he gives her 75 pounds of barley. Because <laughs> why not? Isn't that what we all do? So she goes home with 75 pounds of barley as he encourages her. And he says, I'm going to take care of this tomorrow. There is someone closer and I hope he doesn't claim you and redeem you, but if he does, good. But if not, 
I would like to marry you. And I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of it. And that's where we find ourselves today. That's where we're picking it up. Because now it's go time. Now it's the next day. Big day for Boaz. Big day. He wakes up early, cracks some eggs in a glass, drinks them straight up. Right? Goes out and runs some bleachers up and down until he works up a lather. Then he takes a shower because he stinks. Shaves his head into a mohawk. Puts on an extra medium shirt. Gets all geared up and walks down to the city gate. That's where we find ourselves in verse 1. Ready? Now Boaz, the Bible says, had gone up to the gate and sat down. And behold, remember that word, behold. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So you have the gate. Let me explain that. Let's just pause it for a second. In this story of Ruth, you have two primary scenes where all the action takes place. One is the threshing floor, and we've been discussing that over the last few weeks. The second primary is the gate, the city gate. We don't really have that anymore here. But just to describe the scene for you, back then in the ancient Mediterranean, the towns that were, especially a town like Bethlehem, the streets were really narrow. I mean, just real cluttered. It was mostly just for traffic getting to and from your little ramshackle house. So it's just not a place where people would congregate, you know. You've got hot dog stands and, I don't know, poop on the ground or whatever. I mean, you just got so much going on. It's just not the place where you hung out with your buds. Kind of like the hallway in your house. You don't have a lot of people over for dinner and hang out in the hallway, do you? No. It all became a place at the city gates where everyone would kind of congeal. They would glut together. That's where life happens. That's where commerce would happen because traders would come inside the gate and then exit at the end of the day. So there'd be a lot of commerce happening there. So you'd have settling of disputes there. A lot of handshaking at that place. You'd have relationships nurtured. You'd have legal proceedings. You'd have commercial proceedings. It was just the place where life was lived, the city gates. The closest thing I've been able to think of in my mind of something like that in our society today is maybe like a Starbucks, right? Because no one really goes for the coffee anymore as much as they do. I need a place to flip open my laptop or to meet a dude or to shake someone's hand or to close a deal or something, or maybe like a pub or something like that. Um, pastors, church planners, they would consider a place like this a third place. A place not really home, a place not really work, but a third place where we just kind of slam into each other and do life. It's where life happens. That is a picture of what we see at the city gates, okay? Just to make that a little bit more clear. We see the word behold here. That's an important word. This is actually the second time in this story We see God providentially moving people into each other and introducing them to each other for important meetings. The second time. The first one we saw earlier when the Bible says that Ruth just happened to find Boaz's field. Of course she didn't, did she? There's no such thing as just happening to do anything. That was always God's plan. Listen, there's no such thing as chance or coincidence. God is providential, and he providentially sovereignly with his right hand maneuvered things as such that she would find herself in Boaz's field where he would take notice of her, where he would fall in love with her. This is the second time that this has happened. He goes to the city gates and just look who happened to show up except this guy, this kinsman redeemer that he was going to talk to the very next day anyway. Now, 
what I kept asking myself, and I don't know, is why did God make this so easy on Boaz? Why does he just show up and behold, look who it is. Look who shows up. I don't really know, but I have a guess. I'll just say my guess and you do what you want with it. I wonder if, like me, maybe like you, Boaz would be tempted to just blow the whole thing off. To just sidestep it. If ever there was a time to blow off the law or the culture, this is it. This is it. I mean, let me just remind you of something. This kinsman redeemer that he is about to speak to, that he's about to contend with, didn't want anything to do with Ruth or Naomi. They've been there for two months they've been in Bethlehem. Two months. This guy's the closest relative. He didn't provide for them. He didn't acknowledge them. He didn't love them. He didn't shelter them. He didn't feed them. He didn't acknowledge them for two months. And so you've got a guy like Boaz who wants to marry this woman. You've got a guy like Boaz who wants to be a part of what God is doing in this whole thing, sub- submitting everything to this guy, this clown. And he's thinking, I, why should I do this? That's what I would want to do. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with this guy. I'd be so bothered by the whole thing. It would have been a struggle for me. And I wonder if God just made it easy because at any moment he just might think, you know what, this is stupid. Forget him. I'll just high-five him on the way out. (laughs) You know, I'm not dealing with this guy. Don't you love it when God does that? Has God ever done that to you? You're always thinking, I need to call that guy. Nah, I'm not going to call that guy. I need to talk to that person. Mm, I don't know. God, what do you think? I hope you don't say yes, but what do you think? You know, and then one day you're shopping You look to your left, and guess who's there? Guess who's there? Behold. Someone just happened to be there, right? Maybe that's going on. I don't know. He does call him friend, though. He says, come sit down. Notice something. As he calls him friend, he doesn't call him by name. You want to know why? Because his name's not in the Bible. Nowhere does God mention this guy's name. He's not going to do it. He calls him friend. That's an interesting word. What's nuanced in that word, if you look in the original language, is what you and I would use as we're talking back and forth, and we would say a phrase like, what's his face? Oh, that's a funny joke. What's his face? Said that the other day. What's his face? You know? Or I went and, and, and lifted weights to the other guy with so-and-so. What's that guy? So-? And we always snap when we do it, don't we? Like it's going to come back to us. What's his face? That's what's going on here. Friend here means that. It's a placeholder of, I don't know who you are. So imagine this guy coming down to the city gates, and he goes, hey, what's it? Yeah. Come and sit down right now, right? We're going to have a talk. (laughs) And when a guy with a mohawk and egg on his face tells you to sit down, you just do it. Just sit down, wherever he tells you to. But then he goes and he gets 10 other guys, 10 other men, who didn't have it on Google Calendar randomly grabbed some elders of the city and said, I need you to come into this legal proceeding, this commercial proceeding that's about to happen and bear witness. I'm telling you, I think Boaz probably had a pretty good reputation in the city. It looks that way to me, that they would just do that. And so he jumps in and he wastes no time getting to business. Because, I mean, if I was him, I'm thinking, listen, I'm either getting crushed right now in this whole thing or I'm getting married in 10 minutes. (laughs) But either way, I don't have time for jokes. I don't want to know how your day went. I'm going to just get right to business. And that's what he does. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, no name, right? This is no name. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And no name says, I will redeem it. So he said what you probably would not expect him to say for a guy not very interested two months ago. Notice here that Boaz makes no mention of a young woman named Ruth. He just brings up an older widow who can't even bear children anymore, right? She nuances that in the very first chapter of the book. An older widow and a big bunch of land. Right now, the package looks pretty good. A lot of upside, not very much downside to this whole thing. This guy's thinking, you know what? I know what that land is. Most scholars believe that he knows exactly what that land is. Most scholars believe, or some, I will say some scholars believe that Elimelech and this guy, no name, were very possibly brothers. Whether he was a brother or not, he was the closest relative. And back then, land, relatives' lands, they would border each other. It would keep down on land disputes. So you would have land, and your brother would have the land right next to you. So here's this guy, no name, mowing his lawn, you know, once every week or whatever it is there. And he's just kind of looking over the fence and noticing Elimelech's land. He knows it's good land. He doesn't even think about it. He doesn't have to pray about it. He just makes a decision. Not very much downside. I mean, there's Naomi. There's the old widow. But, I mean, come on. How much can widows cost, right? What do they need, like food or something? He's thinking there's just not much downside. So he says, I'll take it. I'll take it. But if you're reading the text and as you flow through it, you can almost see, you can almost envision Boaz going, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not done. Then he says in verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I can't redeem it. What's going on here? What's going on here? Some weird language. Name of the dead and redemption and Redeemer. Remember, this is something you want to remember as you read the Bible. This will help you read the Bible. God's desire is to preserve a people for himself. We said this last week. God's ultimate desire is to preserve a people for himself. Right? And he's still doing that, by the way. He's still preserving a people for himself. This means he doesn't want them to lose anything, specifically their name, their last name, their namesake, their legacy, their lineage. He doesn't want that lost. He doesn't want the name of Elimelech to be snuffed out. That's not God's deepest desire right here. The kinsman redeemer in this culture is the person that would marry the widow of the dead guy, make babies, and then give those kids the name of the dead guy. That way, the bloodline carries on. So in this case right here, what it would look like is no name, marrying not Naomi to make kids because she's not making kids anymore, but Ruth. And that would carry on the bloodline of Elimelech, Elimelech's name would continue on. His people would be preserved. And that is God's ultimate desire right here. The problem is, this guy, he punts on the whole thing. The deal is soured for him. He doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. Why? Because it's, it's going to cost more. Now there's liability involved. 
I mean, at first it was great because there was just land and, and an old widow who wasn't going to give me much problem. I just put her, give her some room and board, and I've got a big bunch of land. But listen, if I have to marry Ruth, we're probably going to have kids. And that, and that means this inheritance that I have, this legacy that I have, I have to share now with that guy who's not even alive anymore. So I want my name to be preserved. I want my legacy to go forward. I, I, don't, want it, I don't want that to jeopardize my inheritance. I want my kids to carry my name. I want them to get my fields. I want them to get my businesses. I don't want that to mess it up. That's what's going on here. It would be a liability. Earlier, it was opportunity. Now, it's just responsibility. This guy, no name, is virtually saying, wait, 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 wait. I just wanted opportunity. I didn't want responsibility. Any of you ever say that in your life? Does that sound relevant at all? Especially in culture today? Wait, 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 wait. I just wanted opportunity. I didn't want responsibility. Sounds familiar to me. No name here is having a masculinity crisis. That's what's going on to his shame. Remember several weeks ago when we were in our marriage series, we spent a lot of time talking about what real masculinity truly was. And what we learned is this masculinity has nothing to do with bench pressing more than 135 pounds. It doesn't have anything to do with eating a lot of spicy food, growing a beard, throwing a spiral, knowing the quarterbacks for all the D1 coaches or teams. See, I'm not very masculine. Did you catch that? It's not any of those things that we would commonly attribute to masculinity, especially in our culture. Masculinity is nothing more, nothing more than taking responsibility for the mess and the chaos that surrounds us, even if it costs us at the benefit of somebody else. That's what masculinity is. That's what, that Jesus is the most masculine person who has ever lived because at his deficit, we profited. Think about that. He took responsibility for a mess that he didn't make he didn't create the mess our brokenness and sin created the mess but he took responsibility for it on the cross folks you're the mess you're a mess i'm a mess and he was very masculine and that's the gospel right that's also another sermon i'd love to preach that we don't have time for that obviously but what i'd like to make note of is the fact that this guy who was fighting so hard to preserve his own name, is not named in the Bible. Funny how God did that, huh? This guy who wanted to preserve his own legacy is never going to be noted for his legacy. Interesting. Some scholars believe that God did this possibly to save his kids, kids, kids embarrassment later on for the mistake this guy made. Some believe that that's just a judgment on this guy. I don't really care. It could be both. The fact is, is it's not in there. This guy was so interested in expanding his own kingdom and neglecting what God was doing in his own kingdom that God did a reverse on him. And that too is a different sermon. But now that this issue is solved, they got to make it formal. They got to announce it. They got to make it stick because there's a honeymoon that's about to happen and this guy doesn't want to stick around. So verse 7, he just jumps in and he says, Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal. Yes, you got that right, his sandal. And gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
This is like signing on the dotted line back then, right? The sandal is a little bit symbolic for the guy who's giving over the redeeming right. It's basically saying this land that I stand on, that, I, that belongs to me, I'm giving to you. And it's done before these 10 guys. It's a little bit of a visual bookmark. So if no name chirps up in nine months about how he got robbed, I got robbed back then. Well, no, you didn't. Yeah, huh? she's supposed to be mine. I didn't know she was cute. Y'all didn't tell me that. Y'all just said I was going to get her and all this other stuff. But man, I feel a little robbed. Oh, really? Well, you took off your shoe and you gave it to Boaz. No, 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 no. I think it went the other way around. Well, he's got your shoe, friend. You took off your shoe and you gave it to Boaz. It would almost act as a, as a lasting contract. Now, <laughs> I would struggle with this. Aren't you glad that's not around today anymore, this whole thing? Y'all be walking around with some messed up footwear, making deals all the time. I'd hate that. I'm a shoe guy, personally. So I'd be like, uh-uh, we're just going to shake hands or something, man. I had to order these things. I love you, bro, but where's a piece of paper we could sign or something? So Boaz announces this for everyone to hear. What just happened? He announces it. While this guy, no name, he sulks off with no masculinity, no Ruth, no name, and one shoe. And this is what he says in verse 9. The Boaz, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malam. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the, window of, uh, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is my question. Or a question. Why did Boaz marry her? Was she pretty? Maybe. Was she sweet? It, possibly. It sounds like it. He actually gives us the clear intent behind why he did this. He says it. He says that he's doing it to preserve what God wanted to be preserved. He did that so that, he, that Elimelech's name would not be snuffed out from his people and from the gates of that very city. That what God desired and loved would be kept. That's why he did it. What you should see in this is that Boaz is a good redeemer. He's a good redeemer. He's not a selfish one, not a lazy one, right? This is what the story is all about right here. Don't, don't miss this or else it becomes this weird story. If this is just a story about boy meets girl, girl likes boy, but another dude gets in the way and there's a little bit of turbulence, then it just ends up looking like some B-rated romantic comedy that we see all the time, right? Probably with Matthew McConaughey in it. I just called him out. He doesn't listen to our podcast. It doesn't matter. But it would look like something real corny. It just becomes about that. And no doubt, that's how a lot of us grew up hearing this story. Boy likes girl. Girl likes boy. Isn't that romantic? God likes romantic things. That's corny. This story is about Jesus. This is incredible. This is clearly about Jesus. This is about Jesus. You have a bad redeemer on one hand. No name. Bad redeemer. Shirking his responsibility and being masculine. Shirking all of that because it might hurt his position. Then you've got a good redeemer who's willing to take a deficit in his position and going above and beyond what he's obligated to do. He wasn't obligated to do this. No law said that Boaz had to do this. 
He's doing it above his obligation. You've got a bad redeemer over here who's just wanting to profit and increase himself, even if it means the deficit and the hurt of other people. And then you've got a good redeemer over here who's wanting others to profit and benefit, even if it means that he takes a decrease and he gets popped. You have a bad redeemer over here who has nothing, nothing to do with redeeming the needy with helping those who are in need. And then you've got a good redeemer over here who's going to pay the price, go above and beyond to redeem a penniless, poverty-broken widow from another country. And that's us, by the way. Don't miss that in the story either. We are those without covering. We are those without provision. We are those who bring nothing to the table, and we are foreigners to God's camp and to his table, and he brings us in. He is our greatest kinsman redeemer. This is clearly about Jesus. Jesus is the reason the story is even in the Bible, folks. The story was engineered perfectly, written perfectly, placed perfectly to direct our gaze to Jesus Christ. That's why it's in here. As we said last week, the gospel itself, the story of a living, dying, and living again God, the story of God becoming man, living perfectly, dwelling among us, loving us, teaching us, dying out on the cross at our hands, really coming down from that cross totally dead, being shoved in a tomb, God raising him from the dead and him going up to the right hand of God, living, dying, living again, God. That story is such a permeating story that as a beacon, it sheds its shadow across the whole canon of the scripture. Every single passage points to Jesus, whether it's in Proverbs or Revelation or Genesis or even Leviticus. It all points to Jesus. Even this weird little passage, how peculiar is this? They're trading shoes. You know? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is our most significant Boaz who fought for you and pursued you and, yes, redeemed you. And when did he redeem you? When did he redeem you? When you were at the mercy of your bad redeemers. Because we all got them. Bad redeemers. Jesus, just like Boaz looking at Ruth, Jesus looking at us. No provision, no hope, no home, no family. And he actually redeems us. And he doesn't just pay a lump of money for a field and a couple of women. His currency is different. He paid with a perfect life. He paid with a tortuous death on the cross at our hands. He paid as God's perfectly measured wrath was aimed at him as he stepped in front of it for us. All of this was done so he could redeem a bride. Folks, you are that bride. If you are a Christian in this house, if you love Jesus Christ, that is what happened for you. You are Ruth. You, you have got the blessing of Ruth as our better Boaz has gone before us. Now, Naomi and Ruth are back in their cottage or whatever they lived in. I don't know what it was. But that little thing that they lived in, and they're passively sitting, probably wringing their hands, waiting for what? Peace and rest. That's what the barley was supposed to symbolize as it went to them the night before. Hey, peace and rest are coming. Provision's coming. This is just a taste of it. And they're waiting, looking, passively waiting for redemption, passively receiving redemption. They're not working. They're not performing. They're not doing anything. It's just coming. You know, we all want peace and rest. That is really what your soul hungers for. You might not term it that way, but your soul wants to stop writhing and twisting and contorting and trying 
and striving and just, ugh. It wants to stop. It desires that peace and it desires that rest. But because we're so moldy with sin and it's inherent in who we are, because that's true for us, what we will do is we will look for that peace and rest and try to get it at the feet of bad redeemers. We will find bad redeemers to get that. And these broken redeemers, these false saviors, will self-gloss and advertise themselves as things that will bring you that peace and rest. But when it all comes down to it, they overpromise, underdeliver, turn their back on you, and walk off. That's what it looks like. That's the contrast that shows us Jesus right here. For some of you, and I'll give you a couple of examples, and then we're out of this. The couple of examples, I mean, think of some of you, it's identity or it's image. And it's just having an image, wanting a valuable identity. Wanting an image or an identity that has worth to it, that has meaning to it, and you will do whatever it takes to get it. You want so bad to be the funny person, the smart person, the put-together parent, the wealthy guy, the theologically smart guy, the whatever guy, the whatever girl. You'll do anything it takes to get people to see you a certain way. It's almost as if inside, and we never say this out loud, but it's almost as if our soul says, man, if I could just be this person, oh, then I'll have peace and I'll have rest. I've made it. But it never comes, does it? It never comes, does it? Try and you try. Like no name, it's a bad redeemer. And it won't deliver. You see, you were created. You were created to be satiated and satisfied by only a single appraisal of your value and worth. There's only one opinion that will ever, 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 ever meet your soul's demands. And it's the appraisal that comes by God through another person's merits and another person's works. And that's Jesus. You know, we, our better Boaz has given you an identity. He's given you an identity. It's not just any identity. How, what do you mean, Luke? Why do you, how, what do you mean when you say he has given you an identity? I'm going to throw a couple passages up on the screen really fast, and it's just to make demonstrations. So don't bother about turning there because I'm making the case. In 2 Corinthians, something that a lot of you have read before, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. That's a divine transfer. He's imparting his perfect righteousness to us and he's taking our sleaze and our mold and our grime and our scandal and he's taking it on to himself. So yeah, he was punished on the cross, but he wasn't punished for being Jesus. He was punished for being us. That's the punchline. It's a divine transfer, right? A divine transfer. So what, what does this mean? It means when God sees you, when he sees you as a Christian, he sees the merits the performance and the perfect life lived not by you, but by His Son. By His Son. And that's just so hard for us to believe, we won't get around it. It's so hard for us to get our arms around that. It's like we refuse to believe it. It says this in 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Christian, listen, that's how God sees you. Forensically judiciously he sees you as empty of sin i mean you who and me who our mouths are full of deceit and full of lies he sees us as if we have none 
We who are just wrought through and dripping with sin, we sin on accident, we sin in our sleep. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners. And yet he looks at us as if we have no sin. How does he do that? An identity that was given to us. One better than what we can try to manipulate each other to get from each other. This is the one appraisal that matters. His identity, this identity, is more valuable than any that you can get from each other. It's more valuable than being funny guy. It's more valuable than being smart guy, wealthy guy, put together parent. It's more valuable than that. And whenever we, whenever I, whenever I try to manipulate other people to see me a certain way, to really scratch that itch, what I'm really saying is Jesus' perfect life is not good enough for me. It's not good enough. That the adoration and the accolades that come from creation is better than that which comes from creator. I'm going to tell you something you already know. Peace and rest is never going to come to you. Peace and rest is not going to come by getting that thing. You're never going to be smart enough to get that peace and rest. Never popular enough. It's never going to happen. You can't parent your kids good enough. You can't read the Bible. It's not going to come by your own merits, by what you're providing for yourself. And some of you, listen, it might not be image, right? It might be something like control, right? Maybe you don't give a rip what people think about you. Or maybe that's what you want us to think, and you do have an identity problem, right? But for some of you, maybe it's not an identity crisis. Maybe you're not an identity or an image freak. Maybe you're a control freak, I just said it. I'm sorry. Did I just say that? I'm a little bit of one. I'm a little bit of a control freak. I know what it looks like. And we believe that that peace and rest, that the provision that comes, it comes whenever we have control over our universe. All the variables are in line. All the ducks are in a row. And even though the universe is swirling and it's chaotic and it's all over the place and things are slamming into each other, if I could just grab those things and put them in line and make them obey me and be, have dominion over them, then... then peace and rest will come. But how's that working for you? It's not coming, is it? It's not. Because you'll never have peace and rest by having control over your environment. Listen, there's always going to be some pipes that break, right? And it's always when you're on vacation, just like on TV, with inches of water in your living room. That's always going to happen. Someone's going to get chicken pox in your family. You're going to get a letter from the IRS. The brakes will need to be changed again. Junior got in a fight at school. So-and-so was not nice to me at church. These things are always going to happen. Therefore, you will never have control over your universe. You'll never have control over it. You know why? It's a bad redeemer. It's a bad redeemer that brings you no salvation. Control. Self-made control. Manufactured control. It's not going to bring you anything. This is why you always find yourself... I mean, these are the the red lights that flash on our dashboard, the indicators. Screaming at your wife because talking isn't working and you're losing control. So I'm going to scream. I'm going to crank the volume. Screaming at my husband. Melting down on the kids. Punching a wall. Throwing something. Throwing a tantrum, right? Having panic disorder. Having panic in general. Anxiety. Depression, sleepless nights, reflux, all these things that come. These are the indicators on your dashboard if you might have a a problem with control. And I know the lie you tell yourself. It's the same lie I tell myself. If I could just get through this, peace and rest will come. Boy, it never happens, does it? It never comes. It's amazing. never comes. 
What I love about the story of Ruth is it shows the hand of God's providence when things were out of control. How out of control is that for Ruth? Poor, no husband. She's in this weird land with weird customs. She's not a Jew. She's an outsider. And she comes in, doesn't even know where her next paycheck is. She's doing temp work. And God just so happened to bring her into the right field. Was she really out of control? Was that really out of control? No. Not for a second. Right? Not for a second. Think about it. The most out-of-control moment in all human history was really not that out of control. How would it have looked if you were one of the disciples and you saw Jesus pulled off of the nails that were on a cross? Listen, he had no breath in his lungs. He had no blood in his body. He, he had no last-minute jokes. He had no last-minute smile. No miracle that was just going to happen while they're pulling him down. That was it. He was dead. He was dead, dead, dead. He was dead. He was a corpse. And they wrapped him up and they put him in a tomb, rolled a stone over it, and put two Navy SEALs there. That looked out of control. Could you imagine? I would have been, I mean, just the mixture of emotions. I'd been frustrated, felt let down, sad, remorseful, scared, angry, bitter, scarred, all of those things. It would have seemed like God is out of control. But he wasn't. He was building a family. He was building a family. He was building a kingdom. Never was he more in control. Never. Listen, to melt down, to panic, is to forget that God is in control. Because it doesn't look like he's in control, does he? <laughs> it's to forget that he is in control. If you only stop melting down, if you only stop blowing up, if you only get off your panic meds because, because all of your ducks in a row, in a row friend, listen, the universe is just getting bigger for you. Those variables, they don't get smaller, they get bigger. Your life is going to get more complicated. It's going to get more complicated. It's a bad redeemer. It's going to leave you. Having control over your universe is not going to bring you the peace and rest that you are just so determined that it will. I think part of you knows that I'm right. Right? So what does this mean? I'm driving this. I'm driving it. Putting it in park here in a minute. What does this mean? It means that when we are redeemed like Ruth, we are freed, not just from sin and from death. That's true. We're also freed from bad redeemers. No more of those anymore. Listen, you don't have to throw your feet down at a bad redeemer anymore. Not only do you not have to throw yourselves down at the feet of a bad redeemer, you don't have the right to. You don't have the right to throw yourselves at the wrong feet. Not anymore. Not as a Christian. Right? Imagine if you were one of those ten witnesses right there. And Boaz is all up, big chest, everyone else is sitting down, and he's about to lay it down. And right before he says word one, Ruth comes. I'm speaking hypothetically. Ruth comes, still looking good from the night before, smelling good, and she throws herself down at feet, but not Boaz's feet. What if she threw herself down at no-name's feet and said, listen, listen, I'm sorry. Let's just try it again. Let's just try this again. I'll double dip. I'll try twice as hard. We can make this thing work. We would grab her, wouldn't we? We'd say, what are you doing? What are you doing? That guy? He's got no name. <laughs> you know? In one shoe. You have Boaz here. He's a good redeemer. He's giving peace. He's giving rest. He wants to provide. He has life. 
He's a good redeemer. What are you doing? But that's how we do, isn't it? Isn't that what we do? That's what I do. That promise, that over-promise that it will give us peace is just so intoxicating. Listen, I would love for you today to break up with your bad redeemers. Just straight up break up with your bad redeemer. And I don't know what that is. I gave you two examples, and those don't even cover a percentage of the bracket. It could be anything. I just said, what? I did control, I did an image, but I mean, it could be glory, power, security, comfort. Comfort's a massive one. That's a whole different sermon. What is it for you? Who do you need to break up with? Which redeemer keeps lying to you and contending with Jesus, saying it will promise more, but it never does? Who is that for you? Man, I just implore you. I implore you today. I'm begging you to break up with your bad redeemer. I don't know who that would be. Listen, in some of you, Some of you have never seen Jesus as a Boaz figure. What that means is is you've never visualized Jesus being someone who took responsibility for a mess even though he wasn't obligated to do it. You've never seen yourself at the mercy. You've never seen yourself as a penniless widow. You've always felt like you're adding Jesus to your life, but you don't add Jesus to your life. That's not really how it works. You actually need your better Boaz, Jesus, to rescue you from yourself. You don't add him to yourself. He replaces you. It's a traded life. And maybe you've never seen him that way. You've always seen yourself as your own redeemer. But the truth is, friend, you're not redeeming anything. You're throwing yourself down at the feet of redeemers that are just going to walk out on you, and you have a lifetime to prove it. You have a lifetime to prove it. Right? So I'm begging you. I'm begging you today to break up with your bad redeemer as well. I mean, I'm begging you. Listen, I'm going to be at the back today. I really want to pray with some of you today. I really want to pray with some of you today that are struggling through this. You know, a couple of us will be back there. Team, you can go ahead and come on up. In fact, everybody can go ahead and stand up. We're going to finish this right now. But, you know, as we coast into this next part of the service, as Kevin alluded to earlier, we have communion in the back. And listen, communion is something we do as a church that we reserve for Christians because it is a visual gospel for us that doesn't just act as an image for what happened on the cross. It also acts as a foretaste for what's coming in a banquet. It's forecasting for us as well as we have a banquet with Christ one day. So as we come together during the songs, upon your discretion, we have the elements in the back. If you want to take it with a roommate, that'd be great. If you want to take it with your wife, your husband, that'd be even better. Take it with community, though. Take it with people that you know and that you love as best as you can. If you're by yourself, I totally get it. Take it on your own. But that is when we have that available is during these songs, okay? And listen, I will be back there, and I would love to pray for you. Some of you just want to know who Jesus is, and I definitely want to pray for you. Some of you are having a very hard time breaking up with some bad redeemers. You just keep buying that line that rest and peace are coming, but it's not. So I'll be available back there as well. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. You're so powerful that you redeem the unredeemable. I was not worthy of anything, and you brought worth to me. Not because of what I did, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. Father, you're so brilliant that you could put a story in there like Ruth where your name isn't even mentioned, and yet you you permeate every little passage, every little chunk of this. It's brilliantly pointing and forecasting you. 
Lord, you are so large and in control that even when our worlds are spinning wildly out of control and we panic and we will do anything we can to get our lives back in control, Lord, that maybe, maybe it's out of control for a reason for us. Maybe, Father, you're wanting us to see something, grow through something, wait on you for something, listen to you, depend on you, pray to you, wait for you, all of these things. But Lord, we just, instead, we just grab the reins of our own lives, the steering wheel, and we will do anything we can to get that peace and rest. Father, some of us are image. If we can't be the victim, if we can't be seen as that person, the smart, the funny, the whatever. If we can't be seen as that person, Lord, it's, we hate the idea of being in the background. We hate the idea of feeling not very valuable. But Lord, that our hearts would be changed and we would see you as most valuable at our cost. And we would make you the hero of our story so that our story is even worth telling. Lord, that our identity would be none other than what you have given us and that we would be content with that. If the whole world doesn't even know us, that we're content in the fact that you do. That you do. Lord, we love you. You're so good to us. Move on our hearts, Lord. We ask for your spirit to move on our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to make us worshipers from the inside out, to make us respond to your word from the inside out. Lord, you're so good and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.